Would you bow and pray with me as we begin? Father, it has been just a privilege to come before you this morning to rehearse in song these precious truths that you are a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God who has granted us forgiveness. You've loved us in our need. You've looked upon us as those that are spiritually bankrupt and guilty, helpless, weak, and needy. We deserve judgment, but you gave us grace. Our sins are many, but your mercy is more. Lord, we need to hear that message today and every day, every Sunday. And I pray that as we reflect on your great grace and your love, your mercy towards us, Lord, that we would have a fresh experience of that mercy and grace today, that we would be encouraged by it, that we would be humbled by it, that we would be strengthened by your grace and mercy so that we might become who it is that you want us to be. Lord, we wish to offer you the praise and the glory you deserve for all that you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. So minister that grace to us today. Graciously bring us to an awareness, a fresh awareness of our need, of your will, and of your provision for us in Christ. Amen. Please open to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 6 this morning. For those of you who are parents in the room, you have kids, you know that being a parent is one of the greatest joys in life, and there's really nothing like it. And I think for me, and probably for many of you, one of those singular moments in your life is when you look at one of your kids and you realize that they are imitating you. That can simultaneously be one of the most terrifying moments, and it can be one of the most touching. It's terrifying because our kids learn from us, they mimic us, and sometimes that includes our faults. Sometimes they say things in public that we would say in private. Sometimes our, our failures are even amplified in our children. They pick up our bad habits. But it can also be one of the most meaningful expressions of honor and love when you realize that your children, that they love you, that they admire you, and that they want to be like you. It makes you feel 10 feet tall. This imitation takes place in every natural family. For better or for worse, kids tend to reflect something of their parents. And in the teaching of Jesus, we find that this same imitation also is to be taking place in the family of God. That we, as God's children, are supposed to emulate and imitate and become increasingly like our Heavenly Father. Last week, we tackled that famous but difficult first command in Jesus' sermon on the plain in Luke chapter 6, a command that we are to love our enemies and we are to love those who are in need because that's what God does. That's what God is like. He tells us in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The next point in Jesus' sermon follows this same logic. We find it in the very next verse, in verse 36. Jesus says, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus gives us these moral and ethical commands. We are to love, we are to lend, we are to, we are to show mercy but he doesn't just pull these ideas out of thin air. These instructions that he gives to his disciples there on that day and that he, by extension, is giving to us today. 
These commands are drawn directly from the character of God. God is loving, generous, merciful, and this is to shape how we as his children, as citizens of his kingdom, live. The point this morning is that children of God are to be marked by mercy. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. And in what follows, Jesus gives us three insights into this mercy, insights into the mercy that must mark the children of God. The first is right here in verse 36. Number one, the character of God is the model for mercy. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. The character of God is the model for mercy. The word for mercy here means to be concerned about someone else's unfortunate state of misery. It's to be compassionate. This word is often used throughout scripture to describe the heart of God, that he is merciful, that he looks on us in our pitiful state. He recognizes our great need. He sees our suffering and our weakness and our spiritual poverty, and he is moved with compassion when he considers that that's where we are and that's who we are. In the book of Exodus, chapter 34, this is perhaps one of the most brilliant moments in Scripture where God tells us exactly what he's like. Moses asks to see God's glory. God tucks him in the rock. He lets his glory pass before him, and God says this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. And what's the first thing God says about himself? A God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The first thing God says to Moses is that he is merciful. This is God's self-revelation, the essence of his character. This refrain is echoed over and over again throughout the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, that God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. You see it in the prophets that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. It's a drumbeat throughout the Old Testament, and it's picked up in the New Testament as well. In James chapter 5, verse 11, James writes, You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, says that God is the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of mercies. He is the father of mercies. And this mercy is not just descriptive of how God feels. It is also descriptive of what God does. This is more than a passive sympathy. The way that you might drive by a car wreck and go, oh, those poor people, and then keep driving by. No, this mercy is active, and this mercy has been expressed by God. He looks upon us with mercy and compassion, and then he acts upon us. He acts on our behalf. He acts towards us out of that mercy. It's expressed especially in the gospel. In the book of Romans, Paul takes 11 chapters to describe our sinful condition and God's provision of righteousness, the ministry of his spirit, his unconditional and unchanging love. And then Paul sums all of that up in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, as the mercies of God. All of that gospel, all of that salvation, all of that righteousness that is provided to us through faith. Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in light of the mercies of God, 
that you present yourselves to him to live a life of worship. God looked upon us in our sin, in our bondage. He saw us under the sentence of death and he had compassion. He showed mercy and he acted to rescue us from our condition. We seek to reflect this characteristic of God, this mercy. He is the model of mercy. We do it not just because it's right, not just because he commands it, but because he has expressed this mercy towards us. We've personally experienced his forgiveness, his kindness, his generosity. We sang about it this morning. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. Too often we measure our mercy We model our mercy by the standards of the world. We compare our attitudes and our reactions and our choices to other people, what they do, and perhaps even how we've been treated. But Jesus says that our Father in heaven is the model for mercy. That's the standard. That's the template. That's the example. We're to consider what our God is like, how he has acted towards us, and then seek to show that kind of mercy. Jesus says, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. It's the character of God that is the model for mercy. There's a second insight Jesus gives us, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. Number two, the command of Christ defines the manner of our mercy. The command of Christ defines for us the manner of mercy, what this mercy is supposed to look like. What will it look like if you and I try to be merciful the way that our Father in heaven is merciful? Well, Jesus gives us four applications, four usage cases uh, that illustrate this principle in action. If you're going to be merciful like God, then here's what it looks like. Verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Judge not. This is probably the favorite Bible verse for people who don't believe in the Bible. If you ask someone who's not a Christian, someone who's never read the Bible, almost all of them can quote this verse. Modern man takes this saying of Jesus, which is true, which is authoritative, which applies to us, which we must take great care to obey. But modern man takes the words of Jesus and twists this saying to mean something that is far different than what Jesus meant. Probably the modern understanding of this verse is that any disagreement, any disapproval, any speaking of unconvenient truth is simply out of bounds because Jesus says you're not supposed to judge. But listen, if we're going to honor Christ as followers of Christ, as citizens of his kingdom, we need to make sure that we are not distorting his words. So what does it mean to not judge. Well, the word for judge has a broad range of meaning, and that's not something that's unique to New Testament Greek. Our our English language works the same way. For example, I might take an English word like the word hot. You could say the weather is hot. You could say that that salsa is hot. I could say that Patrick Mahomes is on a hot streak because there's 15 straight completions. I hope he scores six or seven touchdowns tonight, right? So you can use the word hot to describe a number of different things. And there's a relationship between all those usages, but they're also a little bit different. And the word for judge in the New Testament likewise has a number of different usages. It can mean, for example, to simply make a selection. To judge 
can mean to simply prefer one thing over another. Many of you will make a judgment today after church. Even though we're preaching this message, you're going to go out of here and judge whether or not you're going to eat out for lunch or go home. You'll simply make a decision preferring one thing over another. We see this in Romans chapter 14, verse five. Paul writes, one person esteems or judges, it's the same word, one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul says we all make judgments like this, and that's not wrong. In fact, we should make such judgments and be convinced in our own mind. This word can also have the idea of simply considering or evaluating because you're trying to understand something. Just one page over in Luke chapter 7, verse 43, Jesus asks his disciples a question, a question about which servant is going to love his master more. And Simon Peter answers in verse 43, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus answers him, you have judged rightly. That meaning of word judgment is simply to to try to discern and to understand so that you can make a decision about something. That's not wrong. This word for judge can also mean just a conclusion that someone arrives at. Acts chapter 16 says that as they went on their way through the cities, Paul and his, his partners in ministry delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. The apostles and elders made decisions. They rendered judgments. And then Paul and his co-laborers passed that news along to the churches so that they knew what to do. It's this idea of right and necessary judgment. Probably the most simple and straightforward meaning of the word judge is in the judicial process where you have a judge who renders judgment. And it's not just at the state level. That's supposed to happen in the church as well. Again, Luke later on in chapter 12, verse 57, writes these words of Jesus, where Jesus says, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Why are you in such a hurry to run off to the judge, the local magistrate? It might go worse for you. Jesus says, you should figure it out while you're on the way. Judge for yourselves. Arrive at a verdict. Figure it out. That's a right and necessary judgment. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.12, he says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Paul says the church has authority and a responsibility to make judgments within the household of God. Jesus in, verse, in John chapter 7, verse 24, says, Do not judge by appearances. There's a wrong kind of judgment. But judge with right judgment. So elsewhere, Jesus calls us to judge and to make judgments, but to do it the right way. So when we take that there's a number of different ways this word judge can be used, we must not conclude that Jesus is forbidding all judgment. That's not what he's doing. There's a place, actually, for assessing another person's spiritual condition. Sometimes we have to do that. In fact, we'll see that maybe next week, two weeks from now, because Jesus is going to talk about the kind of fruit that comes from different trees. Luke 6, verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. 
For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of his good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. If you walk by a tree and see apples, it's an apple tree. You can't help but have your eyes open. You can't help but know what time it is. And there's a place for assessing fruit and trees and such things. In fact, we have to do this if we're going to obey our responsibilities in the church to help those who are caught in a sin or trespass. In Galatians chapter six, it says, you who are spiritual are supposed to restore those who are caught in a trespass, which involves a necessary judgment to identify this brother, this sister, they are stuck. They're struggling with sin. We're called at times to practice church discipline which is a God-ordained and approved kind of judgment. So we have to be discerning as well. We have to make judgments when it comes to doctrine. We as the church have to reject false teaching and false teachers, which is going to require judgment. So what is Jesus saying? While there is a place for necessary and right judgment, We are not to be harsh. We are not to be merciless. We are not to be vengeful or vindictive or critical or proud in our attitudes towards others. So while we are to exercise judgment, we are not to be judgmental. You could put it that way. It's the way we often use the word judgmental. What does wrong judgment look like? We wrongly judge when we take pleasure in identifying the faults of others. That is a wrong judgment. Judgment. And Jesus says, do not judge in that way. We wrongly judge when we render judgment with a sense of superiority, when there's an air of pride and condescension and arrogance. Galatians 6 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There's to be gentleness and humility and self awareness, even as we help other people with their sin. We wrongly judge when we do so hypocritically. Verses 41 and 42 of Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, why are you trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a big old log hanging out of your eye? Such hypocritical judgment is wrong. We wrongly judge when we assume the motives of others. Only God is omniscient. That means I can't read your heart. And you can't read mine. And in fact, we don't even always read our own hearts the right way. Only God sees the heart. Let me give you an example. Perhaps when we walked into church today, maybe you cut in front of me in the door on the way in. I could judge you. I could assume your motives. I could assume that person must be offended at something I've said. I might wrongly assume that that person is so consumed with themselves they're not even considerate about who's walking around behind them. I might wrongly assume that That person is afraid to talk to me. They must be guilty about something. You know, pastors make things really awkward. Uh, No eye contact with him. It might just be that you had four cups of coffee and you need to get to the men's room. How am I to know the motives or the reasons of why someone does what they do? We wrongly judge when we have conclusions about a person's motives. We also wrongly judge when we use a standard other than Scripture to evaluate. And I want to park here just for a minute. It's very easy to judge other people, not according to scripture, but according to my preferences. 
according to my opinions. That's not what I would have done. That's not what I think is best. We wrongly judge when we use the standard of our own feelings. There is such a thing as emotional blackmail. I I read this quote all the time in the context of of counseling and, and discipleship, and I'd like to read it for you. It's an extended quote, but I think it's so helpful. This is from Pastor John Piper many years ago, and he writes this, emotional blackmail happens when a person equates his or her emotional pain with another person's failure to love. They aren't the same. A person may love well, and the beloved still feel hurt, and use the hurt to blackmail the lover into admitting guilt he or she does not have. Emotional blackmail says, if I feel hurt by you, you are guilty. There is no defense. The hurt person has become God. His emotion has become judge and jury. Truth does not matter. All that matters is the sovereign, the sovereign suffering of the aggrieved. It is above question. This emotional device is a great evil. I've seen it often in my decades of ministry, and I'm eager to defend people who are being wrongly indicted by it. Just because I may feel hurt or offended or disappointed by you does not mean that you have sinned. The only measure or standard of judgment, it has to be scripture. There has to be chapter and verse. My feelings, my preferences, my opinions are not the standard with which I am to judge. It is to be God's word, period, full stop. Rather than pronounce judgment in this way, Jesus says we're to have compassion, to be merciful. He elaborates further on this with the next phrase. Not only are we not to judge, but there's a second sort of application of this idea of mercy. He says, condemn not, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. To condemn someone is to pronounce a sentence of guilt, to denounce not just what they have done, but to, but to really denounce who they are, to denounce them as a person. But we need to remember that's not our job. God's word may condemn people. That's fine. He's the righteous judge of all the earth. His judgments are pure and right. But Jesus is saying that you and I don't have the authority or the right to render a sentence of condemnation on anyone. We are to show mercy. We are to look on them in their pitiful state and have a sense of care and concern for their soul. The next statement pushes this idea of mercy even further. We're not only to withhold judgment and refrain from condemnation, that's sort of the the negative side of the coin, don't do those things, Then Jesus turns it over and looks at the positive side of mercy. We're actually to offer forgiveness. He says, forgive, end of verse 37, and you will be forgiven. This is where this mercy becomes personally costly. It won't cost you much to not judge someone and not condemn them. It will cost you to forgive To forgive is to release someone from the debt that they owe. It may be a relational debt. It may be an emotional debt. To forgive means we release that obligation of repayment, that we lay down our claim, and we're not seeking retribution. Again, this is what God has done for us. He is the Father of mercies, God who is merciful, and he has granted us a very costly forgiveness. 
John MacArthur writes, we are never more like our heavenly father than when we forgive others. So who are we to forgive? This is where it's going to get interesting. Are we to forgive everyone? Or do we only forgive those who seek our forgiveness, those who confess their sin and and demonstrate repentance and come seeking to restore their relationship with us. There's a lot of debate and disagreement about that. But I'd like to suggest that a faithful reading of Scripture will show that this command to forgive is really very open-ended. We aren't given exceptions. The heart of the believer is to be marked by mercy, not bitterness, Christ forbids us to hold a grudge or nurse a grievance or harbor an offense. He says we must forgive. Now, at some point, at this point, some people may raise an objection. They'll say, wait a second, God only forgives those who repent. God only forgives those who confess. So if we forgive like God, then we just forgive the people who say they're sorry, right? Isn't that how it works? Well, it's true. God only forgives those who humble themselves and confess their sin and cry out for mercy. He does not forgive those who persist in their rebellion against him. He condemns them, rightly so. But let me share a few reasons why I don't think this gives us an excuse to withhold forgiveness from others. First of all, the Bible often commands forgiveness but it never makes any exceptions. Mark chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Anything against anyone. That seems pretty comprehensive. Matthew 6, 14 says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You have to read really hard between the lines to insert some sort of exception there. Colossians 3, 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. There is an obligation as those who have received forgiveness to extend it. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We could go on and on and add more to the list But in all of the instructions for forgiveness, we're never given an out. There's never a, well, of course, only in the case that they ask for forgiveness. I just don't see any wiggle room there. The second reason I think that this is to be an unconditional kind of forgiveness is that the analogy between us and God, while it can be helpful at some levels, it breaks down. I know this will come as a shock to some of you, but you aren't God. Maybe that's a good reason to come to church every week, to be reminded there is a God and we're not him. He is in a category all by himself and God is under no obligation to forgive everyone. He doesn't have to. Not because that's how forgiveness works, but because he's God. That's why. God is under no obligation. He is the holy and righteous judge of all the earth. Not only because of who he is does he not have to forgive, but God has also never received forgiveness. 
God has never been a recipient of mercy and grace. And so God is not a hypocrite to refuse to extend mercy and grace. God is different than us. We are under an obligation to forgive because he commands us to. We're under his law. And because we've been the recipients of forgiveness, we can't receive it with one hand and withhold it with the other. I think a third reason why this forgiveness should be understood as unconditional is that we really have to understand what forgiveness is and define it properly. And this is what I think may be helpful. If you're struggling with this, perhaps you're thinking of a painful and difficult situation in your own life, which many of you have. You say, what am I supposed to do with that? I'd like to talk about what forgiveness is. It's not pretending. I want to make this clear. Forgiveness is not pretending like it never happened. It is not, to use judicial terms, acquittal, saying that you're not guilty. Forgiveness is rather amnesty. It's a ceasefire. It's a peace treaty. It's saying, while you are guilty and you did do this against me, nevertheless, I release you from your debt. Forgiveness is not living out a lie. It's not denying that we've been sinned against. It is rather an act of intentional mercy. And this forgiveness is multifaceted. There is, in a sense, there's a vertical component to forgiveness. There's a sense in which you and I are called before God, even if the other person never comes to us, to release that offense to him. To say, God, I am not in a position to judge. I am not in a position to condemn. And while I've been sinned against, I release this to you. You are the judge. You will deal with them. And I am going to obey your command to not hold this against them and to release it to you. There's a vertical component to what's going on here. And this is really an internal, what some would call a disposition of forgiveness. Remember in the context here, Jesus is talking about love. He's talking about uh, mercy. He's talking about our motives. He's talking about the life of the inner man. There is to be an attitude, a posture of forgiveness within our hearts even if the other person never comes to us. And here's why this is so freeing. There's countless stories and experiences, some of you may have this, where there's a person who sinned against you and it never gets worked out. And maybe that person dies and you're sitting there at the funeral realizing that that person never confessed their sin. They never apologized. They never acknowledged the way that they sinned against you. Are you held hostage by their unwillingness to confess. No. We are able to obey this command of Jesus to forgive them, even if they never come to us. This is the internal disposition. This is the heart of forgiveness. What you could call a willingness and a readiness to forgive that is primarily between you and God. And this is very important. But this kind of forgiveness, and here's where, again, we have to clarify. If you have this heart of forgiveness towards people, where before God you've released that offense, and where you're ready and willing to give it to them, that doesn't mean the relationship has been restored. There is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You may forgive someone and the relationship is still broken because they've not acknowledged their offense. They've not come to you to, to confess. So the horizontal aspect of forgiveness is when that mercy, that forgiveness that exists in the heart is extended and then personally received by the other. 
Once this horizontal forgiveness is both sought and extended, then the relationship can be restored. Then trust can be rebuilt. But that takes two, and that takes time. It may not be automatic. It may not ever fully happen. But nevertheless, we are called before God and in our own hearts to intentionally lay down our grievances and have a heart and a disposition of forgiveness towards others so that if and when they come and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, we say, yes, I've been ready to forgive you for a long time. So the question for all of us is this, will we obediently seek to cultivate this heart of forgiveness towards people? Are you willing to release before God the sins of others against you? And will you cultivate this readiness and eagerness in your own heart to forgive? That's the application for us. Again, God's forgiveness may be a little different than our forgiveness, but I would still argue that God had this eagerness and this readiness to forgive you long before you sought him, long before you confessed your sin, long before any of us were even born, God had already purchased this forgiveness with the blood of his son. He had already secured atonement for you and me so that when we came to the point of conversion and we believed in him, he could pour out upon us that mercy that was already there. Jesus commands us to be merciful as our father is merciful, which means we must forgive. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Christians are to be marked by mercy, a mercy that forgives and seeks peace. James 3, 17 says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Bitterness, anger, harboring that grievance does not produce that harvest of righteousness. God calls us to show mercy and to forgive. There's a fourth application of this mercy, and that's to give. It's to give. He says in verse 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You know, people give for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes we give because it's tradition. It's Christmas, Got to figure out what to get my brother-in-law again, right? Sometimes we give out of duty. Sometimes we give on birthdays or graduation because that's what we always do. Sometimes we give out of sheer happiness and love. Maybe it's that spontaneous you know, gift for your husband or your wife or, or your mom where you just want to say, I love you, and, and you're just, you want to bless them. Sometimes we give out of that joy and that happiness. But sometimes giving is the expression of mercy, Sometimes giving is linked directly to compassion. Again, consider what God has given to us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We were spiritually bankrupt 
The Lord saw that and he took steps to personally meet our need. He gave himself to us out of compassion. He took steps to personally meet our need. And that kind of merciful compassion that's demonstrated by giving is to be evident in our lives as well. Again, to go to the book of James in chapter 1, verse 27, James says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep yourself unstained from the world. To visit orphans and widows. This is meeting a relational need. These are people that are vulnerable. People who deserve and need our compassion and our mercy. And James says that people that are truly religious, meaning that they actually do know God and they love God and they seek to obey God, they will not leave the orphans and widows alone. And it's implying not just meeting a relational need, but meeting physical needs. You're not just stopping by to make small talk when you visit orphans and widows. It's stopping by to deliver a meal. It's taking that growing boy out to get him a new pair of shoes. It's stopping by to help fix the leaky faucet. There's an implication here that there's a gift. In visiting orphans and widows, there's a gift of time. There's a gift of resources. There's a gift of the self. James brings up this kind of giving, not to narrowly define religion, but he's saying, look, this is an example. This is the kind of thing that people do when they really know God and they actually love him. And it's mercy. It's a lifestyle of compassionate mercy that's demonstrated by giving. So Jesus makes clear that the character of God is the model for mercy, and the command of Jesus here defines the manner of that mercy. This mercy does not judge. It does not condemn. It forgives, and it gives out of a heart of mercy. There's a third insight this morning. Number three, verse 39, we find that the reward of Christ offers a motive for mercy. It's his reward that offers us a motive The starting point, as we've tried to emphasize today, the primary motive for these commands is that this is the character of God. That's what he is like. It all starts there. But Jesus also gives us here a secondary motive, more motivation, which is helpful for us. It's a rationale that appeals to those of us who may question just how important and just how impactful these commands are. Like, really? Like, what's the big deal if I do this or I don't do this? Well, I'll just read through it again, and you'll catch it. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. There's an amazing analogy here at the end. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, put into your lap. This is a marketplace analogy. When you would go buy corn or wheat or something like that, there was a standard measure, you know, maybe a cup or a jar or something like that. But you know, have you, if you've ever gotten you know, that bag of chips that looks really full, but it's mostly air, that is not a good measure pressed down, shaken together. That's the opposite, right? So to get a good measure at the marketplace, you would watch them scoop it up, and then they would shake it around a little bit so that they could put some more in. Then they'd probably press it down a little bit so they could put a little more in. 
Maybe they pile it up in a cone and, and scoop a hole and try to put a little bit more in. They fill it up to the point where it's trickling over the sides. And then you would fold over your robe and hold it out and they would dump it all in. Jesus uses that analogy. He says, if you're merciful and generous like this, you give and forgive like this, your experience is going to be the same. Now, I want to make clear this instruction is not saying this is how you enter into the kingdom. Jesus is not teaching that we earn our salvation. Remember, Jesus is talking to people that are already his disciples. He's talking to people that are already destined to inherit the kingdom. He's talking to people who call God their father, meaning that they've been brought into a right relationship with him already. So Jesus is not saying that our good behavior somehow earns the forgiveness of God, the love of God, the grace of God. So what is the relationship here between what we do and what we get? Because it means something, right? How should we understand this? Well, I think there's two ways to think about uh, what Jesus is saying here. And I think there's a sense in which both of them are really true. In one sense, there is an immediate reward to living like this. If you adopt a lifestyle of mercy, a heart of mercy and generosity and forgiveness, living like this puts you in a place where you will actually benefit from that in this life, in this world, in this age. Psalm 1825 says, speaking of God, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. There's a principle here of reaping and sowing, or sowing and reaping, put it in the right order. There's a principle here that if you will live a life of humility and generosity, forgiveness, that God blesses that. If you treat others with mercy, it brings blessing to your life. But the opposite is quite true as well. If you refuse to live that way, it's probably going to make your life a lot harder. Have you ever been around someone who's angry, bitter, selfish, and greedy? They are miserable people, absolutely miserable. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Proverbs 1, verse 29, speaking of those who reject wisdom, it says, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord and would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. God basically says, fine, make your bed and go ahead and lie in it. If you choose to live with no mercy, see how that turns out for you. There's a principle of sowing and reaping. If you want to live a miserable and lonely life, then be judgmental. Condemn everyone you disagree with. Be hostile and suspicious and cynical. Nurse your bitterness. Hold all of the grudges. Refuse to forgive, be greedy and selfish, but know this, that's like spitting into the wind. If you live a life like that, you can bet you're probably going to get the same treatment in return from other people, and God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So there's a sense in which Jesus is teaching that if you will live this way, there is an immediate benefit to your life. But I also think there's an ultimate sense to what Jesus is talking about. There is a coming reward in the kingdom, as we've seen throughout this sermon. A coming reward, and that those who live this way, they both give proof that they truly are saved, 
and they are storing up for themselves reward and glory in the age to come. This is like what Jesus said in Matthew 6, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You know, there may be times where you show mercy and you forgive and you do not judge and you still feel like you get the short end of the stick from a lot of people. That's okay because we know that life is very short and eternity is very, very long. And, and the momentary suffering and humiliation in this world is very much worth the reward in heaven that is to come. On the flip side, if you live a life of no mercy, if you live a life of no compassion, a life of judging and condemning, a life that is marked by bitterness and selfishness, then that reveals that you really don't know God. You may claim to be his child, but you don't look anything like him. You look nothing like him. And on the last day, such bad fruit will testify to your true nature, and Jesus will have to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So this idea of reward, both in this life and the next, it serves to motivate the believer towards mercy. God calls us to do something that is right, something that pleases him, but also something that is good for us. This is how we win. This brings joy. This brings blessing. In conclusion, it may be tempting for you today. Maybe throughout this sermon, you've thought of other people who have judged you. You've thought of instances where you have been condemned. Perhaps thought of situations where someone refuses to forgive you. But listen, if you go from here only thinking that this sermon is for somebody else, then you aren't listening to the voice of God because he desires to press this truth home into our hearts, into the hearts of his children, so that we start to look more and more like him. So I would ask you, Christian, who does God want you to forgive? In what ways does God want you to redirect your heart and your attitude from one of judgmentalism and condemnation towards a heart of mercy? In what ways can you respond to God's mercy by reflecting on his mercy in the gospel and seeking the reward that comes from God? I think we would do well to end where we started. Remember what God is like. That's really the bookends for this whole thing. Consider what God has done for you. If you're like me and you read a passage like this and you're painfully aware of how we don't live up to this perfect standard, then not only must we confess our sin and say, Father, forgive me because I have not loved as I ought. I have not been merciful as I ought. I've judged and condemned. I've been slow to forgive. We need to confess that as sin, but we also need to pursue growth. We need to pursue change. It's not okay to be the same person tomorrow that we were yesterday. God desires to transform us. So how do we grow? I'll just offer you one very simple application. If you want to grow in having a heart of mercy, there is nothing that softens the heart more than deep meditation on the mercy that God has shown us in Christ. Look at the cross. I'm not, just, not the one up here. I'm saying look at the truth of the cross. Rehearse to yourself the story of how God loved us and pursued us, and showed mercy on us, and extended forgiveness towards us when we were his enemies. If you can look at the cross 
and then walk away and refuse to forgive. Walk away and judge others and condemn them. Walk away and have no compulsion to give and meet the needs of others. Then it shows that you really don't comprehend the gospel. Or it shows that we have a really bad problem with short-term memory loss. We forget. We forget. So the best way to grow, to have a heart of mercy, is to consider who God is and what he has done for us. Meditate on mercy. Meditate on grace. And as we do, God will change us to be more and more like him. May the mercy of God mark us as a people. As we rejoice in the gospel truth and seek to obediently follow these challenging but beautiful commands from our Savior. Father in heaven, I am humbled to look into the mirror and just see all the ways that I know I fall short. Lord, if we're honest, we recognize that we could never keep all of these commands perfectly, and so it causes us to be thankful once again that you are merciful, that you forgive us for our failures and our sins and our rebellion. You love people who have weak faith. You love people who struggle with sin. You love us when we stumble and fall. I pray, Lord, that today we would be mindful of your mercy towards us and that it would begin to change the way we relate to others. May we as your children reflect your glory in this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.